Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 this evening. I want to study the scriptures here tonight before we go to the Lord in prayer as a church. Last week we saw the various responses to the ministry of Christ. We saw the appropriate response to Christ, which is worship and obedience by Peter and the leper and Matthew. And then we also saw the inappropriate or improper responses to the ministry of Christ, which were illustrated, or which was illustrated by three controversies by the Pharisees. They had a problem with Jesus claiming to forgive sins. And uh, they had a problem with Jesus desiring to eat with sinners. And they had a problem with Jesus' supposed degradation of fasting. Remember, he said it's not. Uh, not time to fast right now. Why Why aren't your disciples fasting? Why aren't they as holy as, as we are and our disciples are? And uh, Jesus says, it's not time to fast. I'm still here. Tonight we'll see two more controversies by the Pharisees. And, uh, and uh, th- we'll see this here beginning in chapter 6. The two controversies that we're going to see are the disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath and Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And then that will be followed by the, the Lord calling His disciples in the later verses. So let's read our passage, Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now it happened that He was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and His disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing, it, rubbing, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone, and gave it to his companions? And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of His disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear Him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured and all the people were trying to touch Him for power was coming from Him and healing them all. In this passage that we're going to look at this evening, 
we see that Jesus knows acceptable worship and He knows acceptable discipleship. First, Jesus knows what constitutes acceptable worship, verses 1-11. through 11. Jesus knows what constitutes acceptable worship. In verses 1-5, through 5, we have this controversy, this fourth controversy that follows these three that we looked at last week. And it is uh, Jesus here uh, eating or taking grain from these fields and His disciples on the Sabbath. So here you have the disciples coming through the grain fields and the important part of this story is that it happens in verse 1 on a Sabbath. A day of rest. And the Old Testament had laws with regard to what a person could do on the Sabbath. And the charge that that was uh, laid against them is found in verse 2. The Pharisee said, it comes in the form of a question, but it's not an, uh, an investigative question. It's a condemnatory question, isn't it? Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, there's the charge by the Pharisees. And notice that it's not all the Pharisees that think this way. It's some of the Pharisees. We'll come back to that later. Um, and I think Luke points that out to be fair to them so that we don't broad brush them and just put them all in the same category. But it comes here in the form of a question. Basically, what they're saying is you can't do this. It's unlawful for you to eat this grain, to pick this grain, and then eat it on the Sabbath. Now, they weren't charging Jesus and His disciples with stealing. What you need to know about the ancient Near East is that Old Testament law allowed for a traveler to come through someone else's field. This doesn't seem right in our day because we just have a different custom. But Old Testament law allowed for a person to go through someone else's field and just walk through and take some grain right off of there and and eat it. And uh, that was not a problem at all. It demanded mercy, the Old Testament law did. And it sought for an ideal for those who were foreigners or who were poor. So Israel should have known what it was like to once be foreigners and once be poor because they were once in Egypt. And so God would often say, just like you were a foreigner before, why don't you treat people who come into your land, outsiders, even Jews, uh, or Gentiles like that you allow them to eat off of your land. And so this would not be a problem. This is not stealing in any way. Listen to Deuteronomy 23 that allows for this. Verses 24 and 25. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied. But you shall not put any in your basket. So don't go there and start, start loading up your basket and taking it home to save for later or sell to somebody. And then it says, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain... Then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So if you need some to eat right there, that's fine. But don't take a sickle and start harvesting all their grain. And uh, we understand this. It's just common sense, right? If you go to someone else's house and they have a candy dish out, you know, it's, it's understand. It, it's, it's, uh, it's common uh, sense that, that those are for the taking, right? You can take one or two, that's fine. But if you just took the whole thing and you start dumping it in your purse, people would look at you a little funny. Like, that's not what that's for, okay? Uh, and that's the same idea here. It is, you can have enough for yourself. You need to eat, that's fine. Grab some off of there, that, that's completely not a problem. So the Pharisees, uh, the reason I point that out, that Deuteronomy passage, is because the Pharisees didn't have a problem with what was going on. They had a problem with when it was going on. It's not unlawful for you to be 
picking the grain and eating it. I think the Pharisees were doing that on Friday. But now it's Saturday, Sabbath. And, and so that's the problem. You're, you're not supposed to be doing that. We have laws against working on the Sabbath. And as you know, the Sabbath laws were originally designed to serve Israel by giving them a day of rest. It forced them to have a day of rest like God had intended. Even at the beginning of creation, He had a day of rest Himself. But this Sabbath day that was, that was designed to serve them ended up turning into an endless list of regulations that actually suppressed them. It, it became harsh on the people. It became a burden to them. And the Jews, specifically, had determined over time that plucking grain on the Sabbath was a type of harvesting. And so because plucking grain, yeah, it's okay, Deuteronomy 23 says to pluck the grain, but what we see that as is is a form of harvesting. So on Sunday through Friday, you're completely welcome to do that. But on Saturday, the Sabbath, you are not to be plucking grain because that's a form of Sabbath. And when you rub them together to get rid of the chaff, and that's a form of of the um, what's the next process there of the not winnowing is it winnowing is the throwing it away but um, what is it what threshing. threshing thank you sorry I couldn't hear uh, threshing thank you so so you got the harvesting the threshing the winnowing throwing it away and then now you now you're eating it too so. They had all these laws that say, no, you can't do that. So what they've done is they've taken what the Old Testament law was supposed to be, was supposed to be designed to serve the people, and now made it a burden for them. And so Jesus defends Himself and the disciples' actions here in verses 3 through 5. He responds to their question with a question, and, and just like their question is condemnatory, so Jesus is. Notice the very first part of what He says. Have you not even read? Don't you know? Haven't you read in the Old Testament law, you who are supposed to know the Old Testament law? Haven't you read the story about David? And then he shares the story from 1 Samuel 21. David and his men were running from Saul at this time. Saul was still the king, obviously. And David and his men came to the tabernacle in Nob. And they were hungry. And so they were looking for some bread to eat. But... The priest didn't have any bread besides the showbread that had just been replaced. So what would happen is they would put some showbread out on the table. Of, uh, I think it's the table of presence there. They put the showbread out. They leave it out for seven days. And then after seven, they put a fresh batch of bread out there. And then the, the, the bread that had been taken off was supposed to be for the priests. The priests were on, the only ones who were to be eating that. No one else. So David and his men come and say, do you have any bread? And they say, well, no, besides this, this show bread that's for us. And David said, well, we, we are famished. We need to eat something. And David and his men, according to 1 Samuel 21, take the bread. And Jesus records this or reports this, reminds them of this in verse 3. They fully would have known the story. Jesus is trying to show them the implications of it. Look at verse 3. Have you not even read that David, when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, the temple, and took and ate, or sorry, the tabernacle, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone, and gave it to his companions. So here's the point Jesus is saying 
You need to understand what's going on there. King David made a clear exception in this case because of the situation that he was in. And yet, no one condemns David. Even the Pharisees would not condemn David. And that was Jesus' point. point. He, no one would have condemned David for what he did because he was doing what he needed to do at that time. Being the king, he could make that choice. And so, King David ate what was technically unlawful and yet was not blamed. And so, the Pharisees would agree to that point. David was right to eat the showbread in that situation because, remember, the showbread, just like the Sabbath day, was designed to serve the people, not to become a burden to them. It was never designed to be detrimental to the king and his men at a time of need. And so Jesus is making an important comparison that we can't miss. If David could do what was, in, in all technicalities, unlawful, and yet be justified, and rightfully so. Could not Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, break some of the man-made standards? Okay, Now, He's not breaking the law. He's, he's, he's going against the man-made standards in order to accommodate His disciples. Could He not do that and be justified? And, and obviously, the implied answer is yes. And notice how He states this in verse 5. He says to them, the Son of Man, speaking of Himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Just as David was the king, the Son of the Man, the Son of Man, Jesus, is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has the right to make law. He has the right to, to interpret law, to show them what the law was really designed to do. Now, the Pharisees certainly could not have been happy about this. And so, Luke records another event to help prove that Jesus really is the Lord of the Sabbath. And this event is, is uh, found here in verses 6 through 11. Watch what he does with this man with the withered hand. Jesus knows what acceptable worship is, and here he's saying what he's doing is right on the Sabbath, that he and his disciples are free to do what they are doing. Now he wants to expose their, the folly of their man made religion, verses 6 through, eight, uh, 6 through 11. He exposes the folly of man-made religion. In verses 6 and 7, we have the, the setting again. And, and the most important part again is what day it happens on. On another Sabbath. So he enters the synagogue as he often would when he would come to a city. He enters the synagogue and, and he was teaching there. And there was a man who had a withered hand. And the scribes and Pharisees, verse 7, were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. So what are they doing here? They're looking to trap him. They are waiting for him. He's going to heal on the Sabbath, and I know that he's going to violate the law, and he will be exposed as a fraud. He's not the true Messiah. That's what they wanted to do. That's what they wanted to prove. Now, you need to understand, you need to understand a few things about this situation. Okay, A withered hand is exactly what you might think it is. A withered grape is a raisin, right? A withered piece of beef is jerky. These things all have the substance taken out of them. But for for a person to have a withered hand, it is really of no value. All the muscle tissue has atrophied and it has become weakened and useless. And so the Pharisees saw this 
as a non-life-threatening ailment. Would you agree with that? Is that a non-life-threatening ailment? Yes, absolutely. He's going to make it till tomorrow. He's going to be fine. And so because of that, they made up regulations that said the only person you can help on the Sabbath is a person who has a life-threatening situation. So if a person is having a heart attack, you don't just leave them there because you're not allowed to work. Or you know, The point of the Sabbath, again, is to serve man, not the other way around. We're not there to, to, uh, to serve the Sabbath. And so, because this man's ailment was non-life-threatening, then if he was going to be healed, then he needed, it needed to happen tomorrow. So, if Jesus, they already knew He could heal people. They'd already seen it. They'd heard reports about it. But if He's going to do it, He better not do it on the Sabbath because this is non-life-threatening. Let's see how serious He is about being a Jew and being a true Jew in their minds, right? So, Jesus exposes their error in verse 8 and through 11. Now, without them saying a word, Jesus knows exactly what to do. Look at verse 8. But He knew what they were thinking. So, He reads their minds and He invites the man to come forward in verse 8. Now, the synagogue would not be like our church auditorium okay, or even this room here. The synagogue would have benches all around the outside and the person who would read the Scriptures would come to the middle and he would stand up and read. Uh, and the person who would teach would go to the middle and sit down. To, to teach. So this this man would have had to come to the center so that everybody there, all these Pharisees, all these religious teachers, um, they would have seen this and, and it would have been in view of all. Before he heals the man, he asks an important question that really is not for the benefit of the man. It's for the benefit of the hearers. He asks a question specifically to the Pharisees to cause them to think in verse 9. Look at what it is. I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to destroy it? You see what Jesus is asking here? The issue of healing on the Sabbath comes down to something that's very black and white. Is it right to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? He just boils it down to a black and white issue. So you need to make a choice. This man is standing here before us all and he is impaired. I have the ability, Jesus is effectively saying, I have the ability to help this man. And so if I withhold that good to him, what does that say of me? Jesus sees things in very stark terms. In in very stark terms. So think about your own situation? What is the the thing that physically ails you the most? Think about that right now without saying it. Maybe it's something that's plagued you for a week. Maybe it's something that's plagued you for years. Suppose you come to my house one day and I had a proven medicine for your ailment that was hard to find. But because I had a personal conviction against other people drinking from my medicine bottle, I wasn't going to give that to you. Instead, I agreed to order one for you. What, what would you think of me? Would you think of me as kind or as harsh? I have the very elixir that you need to get better of your ailment that you've been struggling with for however long. I'm withholding it from you because of a personal standard that I have. 
You see, Jesus was the cure for this man. And for Jesus to withhold good from the man actually was evil. And He was trying to teach that to the Pharisees. And so at the heart of His question, you know, is it right to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? At the heart of His question is this question. Who is doing what is honoring to God? Am I doing what's honoring to God in healing this man? Or are you doing what's honoring to God in trying to set up all these barriers to keep you from falling into, uh, into disobeying these rules? So what the Pharisees would do is God would say, okay, you cannot come across this line. So the Pharisees would say, fine, we're going to put up a fence right here. And over time, they said, well, we don't want to go past that fence because then we'll be in danger of crossing the line, which is the actual sin. So we're going to put up a fence back here. And eventually the fences kept moving back farther and farther to a place where they're actually defying God, defying God in other areas. And Jesus is saying, who really is honoring God? You set up your fences all the way back here in order to avoid something, breaking the Sabbath laws. And what I'm saying is, I'm way over here, past your fences, and I'm trying to help this man without breaking the law. You see? So who really is honoring God? Am I honoring God by seeking to save His life, to, to enhance His life, or are you honoring God by making sure that you're far away from, from what uh, God wants, uh, God, God demands or prohibits? So Jesus waits for an answer in verse 10. And this must have been a very tense moment after looking around at them all, waiting for an answer. So, what's the answer? What's better? Is it to save a life or to destroy it? What's the implied answer? Save a life. What do you think the Pharisees thought the right answer was? Save a life. They knew the answer too, but why didn't they answer? Okay, They knew they would invite themselves. They, they, would, they would indict themselves, right? Like, well, actually, it's right. He's, do, he's doing what's right. He's doing what's helpful. They don't want to do that because they would indict themselves. And so they don't say a word. Jesus looks around probably for a long period of time. And I can imagine He looks at them each one by one. And nothing. No response. And so He says to the man, Stretch out your hand, verse 10. And He did so, and His hand was restored. What is funny and ironic is how little work Jesus actually did to restore the man's hand. What did He do? What actual work did Jesus do to restore the man's hand? He didn't touch him. He didn't even move. He basically just spoke some words, which is hardly a violation of any Sabbath law. This is all He's doing. And yet they were so adamant about their regulations that they were willing to act unmercifully in order to keep their laws. Do you see what's happening? The fences have been set up. Now their fence is way back here. In order to keep this fence, keep from crossing this fence, now they start breaking other laws. And that is to show mercy. They couldn't show mercy because they're on this side of the fence. And Jesus is saying, you set up too many boundaries. Get back to what God has told you to do and start showing mercy. And notice their response in verse 11. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. And Mark's Gospel says that they wanted to destroy Him. This was the time when they decided it's time. 
It's on. He, he's out of here. We're, we're going to kill him. We learn from this that clear miracles do not guarantee softened hearts. These Pharisees are in close proximity to the actual miracle going on and they still do not soften their hearts. But the focus really wasn't on the miracle. The focus of this story that Luke records is on the fact that Jesus had made a fool out of them and their regulations. And that is the case with us many times as well. In the case of clear evidence, we would often rather sin against God than be publicly humiliated. We would rather sin against God than be publicly humiliated. I think that's exactly what's going on with the Pharisees. They realize that they have been exposed, but because they desire to be seen properly among people, they're happy to keep on showing showing harshness, not showing mercy. How often are we like the Pharisees that we have barricaded ourselves so far away from what God calls evil that we violate His other demands in the process? I mean, how far will we go to maintain our code of conduct that in many cases is extra-biblical? Do you know what I mean by that? Not anti-biblical, but that is where God hasn't spoken about a clear instruction Okay, so we have to make a principle that turns into a rule and then we hold tightly to that rule and we force it on other people. How far will we go to maintain our fences that are in many cases extra-biblical? God tells us to go show love to our neighbor and if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we have to respond by saying, well, I'd like to, but I have a personal standard against interacting with unbelievers. I don't want to get spotted by the world. I don't want to get stained by all their sin. So I need to keep my fence back here. And now I can't even have a relationship with these people. Hey, obviously it's wrong to go over and start doing the same things as them as far as the sin, sinful things they do. But what about just having them over for dinner? I can't do that because what if they talk about something that would be uncomfortable? What if they swear at my house? What if they wear something that I wouldn't necessarily wear? See what we've done? We've set up boundaries way back here and we can't even do what we're required to do. I pray that the Holy Spirit will use the example of Jesus here to show us that while our standards are often well-intentioned, they can actually become stumbling blocks to genuine righteousness. Our standards can become stumbling blocks to genuine righteousness. So Jesus knows what constitutes acceptable worship. Verses 1-11. through 11. Verses 12-19, to 19, Jesus knows what constitutes acceptable discipleship. Jesus knows what constitutes acceptable discipleship. The reason we know that is because He chooses His disciples here in verses 12 to 16. So, in contrast to this controversy that's now been set up in Luke's Gospel, all these people are rejecting Him. The religious leaders of all people, the people that know the Scriptures, they're rejecting Him. So, we might think, well, Jesus is not a very well-liked figure, but here we see that He actually is followed by many as well. He starts to gather and teach these 
specific 12, these followers of his. And notice the first step before he chooses his followers. Verse 12. What's the first thing that he does? It was at that at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Prayer must be a vital part of our lives and prayer must be a vital part of the big decisions in our lives. Apparently, Jesus goes off to the mountain as He often would in solitude to pray and show His dependence upon God and actually depend upon God. And here He's praying for wisdom, I think, in choosing the disciples and probably praying for empowerment to teach. That's what He's going to be doing here at the end of chapter 6 with this Sermon on the Mount verses 20 to 49. But notice how long he does this. At the end of verse 12, he spent the whole night in prayer. So, not sure exactly how long this is, but somewhere probably around 8 to 10 hours in dependent prayer, seeking God's desire regarding his choosing of these 12 men. So, here's what we ought to see in this. If Jesus could not if Jesus could not choose these disciples without dependent prayer. If Jesus could not live his life without dependent prayer. How much more can we not live without dependent prayer? And that was a double negative, so I'll say it, say that positively. How much more ought we to be dependently praying to God? What did Jesus say in John 15.5 Without me, you can do everything. Without me, you can do a few things. Without me, you can do nothing. Jesus recognized that He was dependent upon the Father. That doesn't mean that He wasn't God. It means that He is, as the Son, He is subservient to the Father. That's how the Trinity works. The Holy Spirit serves the Son and the Father. The Son serves the Father. We never hear God the Father serving the Son or God, God the Father serving the Spirit. It doesn't work that way. There is a hierarchy of rule within the Godhead. And so it's completely right for Jesus to depend upon God, particularly in His human body. He would pray with Him. He would intercede on behalf of Himself and others. The answer to His prayer is found in verses 13 through 16, and it is the calling of these these 12 men. He'd already called Peter and Matthew, if you remember from last time, but it wasn't really clear what their role was. Here we see what their role is. Verse 13, When day came, He called His disciples to Him and cho- chose 12 of them, whom He also named as apostles. Okay, So when you see the word apostles, just think of representative. They are Jesus' representatives. They are authorized representatives of Jesus the King. And during the life of Jesus, they if you think about them in comparison to the rest of the crowd, the rest of the disciples that Jesus has, because hey, I hope you recognize He has more than just the twelve. He has another group of seventy that seem to follow Him. And then there's a larger group than that that seem to, to kind of follow Him. And so if you compare Him compare these 12 disciples with the 70 disciples, they're not much different. You know, both crowds hear Him teach, like we're going to see in... in uh, uh, we can look here at verse 17, just, just to show you. 
Jesus came down with them, the twelve, and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of His disciples. There's even more than the twelve. In addition to the, the, the twelve that He had chosen, there's this other group of disciples. So they hear Him teach just like uh, the twelve disciples hear Him teach just like the larger group of disciples. And in chapter 10, verses 1 to 16, Luke tells us that they're actually sent out. Just like these disciples are sent out in twos to preach in His name, so the other disciples are sent out. So, during the life of Jesus, they're not a whole lot, of, lot different. Now, sometimes Jesus pulls them away and talks to them in private uh, where He doesn't with the larger group of disciples. But, but really, we start to see their importance once we get to Luke's second volume. What is his second volume? The book of Acts, right? And the Acts records the, the expansion, the, the establishment and the expansion of the local church. And these twelve apostles would be Christ's representatives, Christ's leaders in the church. Obviously, Judas is replaced by Matthias. But, but the point is that these twelve apostles are set aside as Jesus' representatives. A few observations about uh, these apostles. First, they're all men. Again, this, I, I think that's because they are going to be establishing churches. They need to be men. They were ordinary Right? None of them were religious elites. This is surprising. You would think that Jesus would choose at least one Pharisee or scribe that would have known the Old Testament law to follow Him, but He doesn't. Instead, He chooses just ordinary people. People who are fishermen, tax collectors. And that, that's the way that Jesus tends to choose people even today. He works through just ordinary people. Uh, pardon me? Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, you have other Pharisees coming to Christ with... It uh, seems that Nicodemus comes to Christ later on because uh, he, he helps Joseph of Arimathea with his body. seems that he comes to Christ. And then, yeah, Paul, is a, the Apostle Paul is a Pharisee as well. Um, third observation is that they they have some competing personalities. If you notice in... Verse um, verse 15, Simon, at the end of the verse, Simon, who is called the Zealot. The Zealot was the one who worked hard to overthrow the Roman government. He had a huge problem with the Roman government and its power. And so you have him coming alongside of, verse 15, Matthew. What was Matthew? He's a tax collector. He was working for the Roman government. So you have two people that are competing and now they come together as Christ's apostles and actually serve Christ's purposes. And then the fourth observation is that only 11 were believers. So Jesus prays all night. He chooses 11 believers, one unbeliever. What happened there? Did He not pray long enough? Okay. What we ought to recognize is that this was all a part of God's plan. This was part of how Christ was going to be betrayed, be handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes. So that's all part of God's plan. And there's actually an answer to prayer that Judas would be a part of that. Well, in verses 17 to 19, we're going to look at next week, Jesus teaches them what discipleship means. And that's really what the rest of the chapter is about. He starts to talk about what this means. For, what does it mean to follow Christ? Two observations about our passage tonight. Two observations. Number one, God is the final authority on life and practice. 
Okay, think back to the controversies here by the Pharisees. The problem with the Pharisees' claim was that they were holding their tradition, their fences, on par with God's Word. So that if a person crossed over this fence, then they've crossed over the, the boundary line of obedience or of disobedience. They've crossed over. And really, you can come on this side of the fence and still be obeying God. And this is what Jesus does. He constantly challenges them. Really? Is that really what God was intending? What He had in mind with the Sabbath day? No, that's not at all what the law, what, what the law demands. They had put their tradition on par with God's Word. And so here's what we must recognize. We cannot speak authoritatively about traditions or former practices when those practices are not mandated in Scripture. Okay, We can't make our standards the commandment, the law. We turn it into the law. So let me just give you an example, of hopefully one that you don't have a problem with anymore, but was a problem uh, just a couple decades ago. Ladies wearing pants to church. Right? Yeah, don't look around right now. Okay? 20, 30 years ago, that was a problem. Beards on men 40, 40 years ago. Right? Because that was associated with the hippie movement. Right? That was a problem. You would be looked down upon. I, I came from a church that came out of that where the pastor said to my boss when he was home on vacation, or not vacation, but he was done with his junior year, I think, of college. And this, he's a hairy man, by the way. So he just, I mean, he just thinks and his hair grows on his face. He came to church one night, unshaven, scruff on his face. And the pastor came up to him in the hallway and said, hey, I got a a razor in my office. And my boss laughed at him. He thought it was a joke. And the pastor wasn't making a joke. Okay, so this was a serious problem 40 years ago. And and what happened was that the standard, we don't want to be associated with the world. That's a good reason to set up a boundary but now the boundary has become the rule or, or has become the law. Anyone who doesn't obey this law has sinned. Now, I don't know if the pastor went that far uh, in, in, in saying that that's actually sin to have hair on your face. But the point is that we often make standards. And, and please don't get me wrong. Standards are good. Okay? We ought to be making standards for ourselves because if we don't, we just tiptoe on the ed, edge of destruction. And we've seen lots of people fall over. So setting up standards for ourselves is good. Rules in school are good. Rules at home are good. Okay? Making up rules for yourself so that you're self-disciplined, that's good. Okay? But recognize that those are not necessarily of God. Here's where we come into conflict with God's Word, where we start setting up these standards. I don't want to go over there. Now, anyone who, doesn't, anyone who goes past my line is in sin. Okay? Or even... I'm in sin for going past my standard. Now, it does start to get more complicated because it is true that when we go against our conscience, we are sinning. So we've got to be careful with that. But we need to train our conscience to, to see what is right and recognize that God is the final authority on life and practice. It's easy for us to speak on the authority of God where God hasn't spoken. 
and say, well, this is what God says. Hey, so suppose I told my children that they're not to go in the street. The street is dangerous. They're not to go out there. And so I, I set up a rule. I said, you cannot go into the street. But Jonathan decides that he's going to set his rule a little bit farther back so he doesn't even come close to getting in the street. So he sets up the rule that I'm not going to go past the sidewalk. So Josie comes out to play and she decides she's going to play in the little strip of grass between the sidewalk and the street. And Jonathan says, no, you're not allowed to do that. Is he right? And maybe for himself, because he set up the, his boundary not to go past the sidewalk. But that wasn't the rule. The rule was, don't go into the street. Now, if she were kind of just walking on the edge and really just pushing it, that might be a problem. He's there to protect her. But um, but you see what's happening is we we can quickly get away from what God has required because we've set up standard after standard. We keep pulling back farther and farther, and now we can't even show mercy to someone because we've set up our standards way far away from what God wants to do. And we've actually become, amazingly, unbiblical in the way that we live. God's Word is the authority of life and practice. That's where we constantly need to be refining our minds so we understand what God wants so that when someone comes along and says, you know what? Why do we do it that way? We say, you know what? We need to research that a little bit. When, when someone like Jesus comes along and says, it is lawful for me to heal on the Sabbath, they'll say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right, we, we recognize that God's Word actually designed the Sabbath to serve men. God is the final authority. So number two, second observation, be careful about broad brushing. Be careful about broad brushing. It's easy for us to look at an individual like we were talking about in Sunday school, peg them into a certain category, and then think we have their whole profile all figured out. Like we know this person because of these few things that put them into this category. But what we need to recognize is that many times there are exceptions when a person is in a specific category. Notice verse 2 again. Luke is careful to make this distinction. He says, But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful? Some of the Pharisees. So, he's saying not all of them are thinking this way. Some of them. Some of them may have been thinking rightly. Okay? And we also need to recognize that the other other side of the coin is true as well. Notice verse 16. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So just because a person is called the disciple doesn't mean that he's a true follower of God. We might like to broad brush everyone who is a Pharisee as a hardened, unreachable person, cold, indifferent, unmerciful. We might like to broad brush them, but but actually you have someone that actually does show mercy, like Nicodemus. Someone who actually does want to know the truth. He's not just standing on mountains of laws and standards from ages past. And we might like to broad brush everyone who is a disciple as obedient and teachable. But we learn from this passage in the way that Luke carefully records these events, that's not always the case. And that means that we have to use discernment when evaluating people. We should be slow to broad brush people 
into a specific category that is coupled with specific expectations. So just as an example of this, you know, there are women who have been divorced, and perhaps you've run into women like this who think that all men are jerks, right? Because their husband was a jerk to them. Well, is that true? Some of you ladies are a little slow to answer that question. Wow. Wow. Okay. The question again was, are all men jerks? No. Okay, good. Thank you. And and so we do great damage when we just broad brush everybody. Well, all men are like that, right? Because we've assumed that we properly understood them even though we haven't properly investigated them specifically. And the way that that might show up for us is for people who call themselves Christians. Right? You have this on the news all the time. And you have to recognize that the word Christian is a very loose term. Catholics are considered Christians. Okay? Or someone who calls himself a Baptist. Oh, they must be the kind of Baptist that we are. But do you realize there are a lot of Baptists that are not even close to us? And, and yet, we just assume they are because they have a label. That's why we have to be careful about those types of things. Just We get the label, we know who they are. It requires some discernment, requires a little bit of investigation. And just looking at, at uh, Luke's record here, some of the Pharisees and really some of the disciples were actual followers of Christ. The other was a fraud. And uh, so we need to recognize that we live in a very complex world and it's difficult to tell. So, so God is the authority of... God's Word is the authority of life and practice, and we've got to be careful about broad brushing. Jesus knows acceptable worship. And he knows what the Sabbath day was meant for and what the rules really were intended to do. And He also knows acceptable discipleship. And we'll see more of that next week as He gives the Sermon on the Mount. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word and how practical it is for our life and for for our life as a church. And I pray that we as a church would be careful to um, careful not to categorize people into uh, unhelpful labels and that we also would be careful not to set up unnecessary boundaries that would keep us from actually doing Your will. And Lord, I, I recognize that, that with that comes a lot of difficult questions and it, it really makes things very complex. We like things simple. We just put up a boundary and we're not going to go over there. But, but the life of a Christian is very complex and requires a great amount of wisdom and discernment and dependence upon you. And that's exactly where you want us. So help us, we pray, to, to be able to learn that discernment and to be able to help others to do the same. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.